Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. It is Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. The Canada's most irreverent talk show is about to begin here on True North. You're tuned in to the Andrew Lawton Show, and I thank you very much. It was a bit of a slower day before the Public Order Emergency Commission, but I am going to talk about what's happened there because I think in general we're seeing the culmination of all of this evidence and testimony and documents and all of that coming forward, which is continually chipping away at, if not completely eroding, the federal government's narrative about the necessity and the justification of the Emergencies Act. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit of depth later on. But I want to shift the spotlight to China, which is not something I've talked about on the program in a while. It's an issue that matters a great deal. China is vastly becoming a global superpower, and you needn't look further than Canada to see it. But on the global scene, it's incredibly important to start paying attention to this. One issue which doesn't get nearly enough attention is China's Belt and Road Initiative. This is a multi-trillion dollar investment plan that basically entraps the developing world in economic colonialism. But when you go to places like in the Caribbean or in Africa or poorer Asian countries, you'll see all these brand new airports, bridges, highways. It's all paid for by China. And some have said this is debt trap diplomacy. No matter what, it is China extending its tentacles very far so that there are trade networks connecting China with all reaches of the globe. It's flipping the, uh, flipping around the old uh, 15th century or 16th century mercantilism to the benefit of China and the Politburo. And it's not just economic influence, though. It's also security influence as well. There has been a vast infiltration of global institutions such as governments, academic institutions, private sector organizations, corporate cultures that have seen Chinese state operatives take on, in some cases, very prominent roles. In many cases, it may be to advance the Chinese Politburo's agenda. Maybe it's just to create economic ties. In some cases, it is for the direct purpose of espionage. Just this week, we had espionage charges against a Chinese operative who had been working for Hydro-Quebec. Now, what it is that he wanted from Hydro-Quebec that uh, China was interested in, I have no idea. But the RCMP has accused Yue Shang Wang, who was a researcher for Hydro-Quebec, of espionage. And they have now charged him and said he was illegally doing work for Chinese institutions while employed at Quebec's hydro regulator. This is just one of many cases. We still don't have answers on exactly what was happening by those researchers that were employed at Canada's only level four bio lab, the lab in Winnipeg, which the government has gone through painstaking efforts to conceal the documents connecting to that investigation. So the evidence of Chinese infiltration is vast and ongoing. We keep finding more and more examples of this, not to mention politicians who have been uh, compromised by China. In the U.S., there was that uh, Democrat presidential candidate Eric Swalwell a couple of years ago. In Canada, CSIS has made claims about Chinese influence of politicians as well, including a former provincial cabinet minister in Ontario, a former federal conservative member of parliament, and possibly 
many, many more conservative MPs and liberal MPs alike. That was uh, not meant to be directed at one party. It's that we know for a fact China has tried to support a network of 11 federal candidates. And this was in the 2019 election. They put money towards this. They may have spread misinformation to go against incumbents, but 11 federal candidates, not all of them liberal. And this list has not yet been presented of exactly which candidates we're talking about. We know in one case that uh, Kenny Chu, who will be on the show in just a few moments' time, uh, he was targeted by the Chinese Politburo. Now, not targeted with support, targeted with opposition. Perhaps they didn't like his strong support of Hong Kong and his criticism of the Chinese regime. But we know that China was using Canadian institutions and Canadian networks to funnel money towards its chosen politicians. And what are we supposed to say about this as a country? Ah, well, it's no big deal. It's no big threat. Uh, the world is still treating uh, Chairman Xi Jinping as being the partner in climate. Because if you are a partner in climate, it doesn't actually matter what else you do. You can get a seat at the big boys table. And when it comes to criticizing China's genocide of Uyghurs in its uh, Xinjiang province, even then, Justin Trudeau will clam up and refuse to call a spade a spade. This is what happened when he was asked about this on one of his foreign junkets this week. Today, you took an emotional tour of Cambodia's Genocide Museum. Tomorrow, you're going to be at the G20 with China. Now, the Canadian Parliament has already called China's treatment of the Uyghurs a genocide, so why haven't you? As I've seen when I visited the Shoah Memorial, the Holocaust Memorial in Israel, as I've seen as I visited the Holocaust Memorial, the, the Genocide Memorial in Rwanda, uh, as I saw today um, visiting and seeing the history of the genocide that happened here in Cambodia. The word genocide, acts of genocide are things to be taken incredibly seriously as a, as a world. And we have um, objective historical uh, expert processes to put in place those words and those designations. We continue to call out vicious human rights abuses around the world, including against the Uyghurs uh, in Xinjiang by the Chinese government. But designations of genocide need to be made by uh, proper uh, international authorities. So he takes that little awkward pause there says, well, remember, you know, genocide is a big word and we don't just like throwing around those big words. And, you know, that might be a defensible position if Justin Trudeau hadn't used the word genocide to describe his own country. If he hadn't accused the Canadian government, over which he presides, of perpetrating a continued genocide against Indigenous women and girls. Now, if you're going to be the guy that says, you know what, we really want to think carefully about using the word genocide, that's perfectly fine. But don't use it against yourself and not against China and expect that you're not going to get called out on that. 
But as we've seen, Justin Trudeau has a big China-sized blind spot in his foreign policy. Like I mentioned, when it comes to climate change, he's all about working with China, hobnobbing away. He will have the frank discussions. He'll finger wag about the uh, abduction of the two Michaels. But when push comes to shove, where is the tough talk? And I think it's important to play this clip that's been going viral from Bali, the site of the G20 summit, where Justin Trudeau had a, a bilateral meeting with Chairman Xi. And Chairman Xi didn't like the news of the contents of that meeting made its way into the press. And he decided to take his concerns to Justin Trudeau directly. Everything we discussed is leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate. And that's not how the way the conversation was conducted. If there is sincerity on your part, free and open and frank dialogue, and that is what we will continue to have, we will continue to look at the work constructively together, but there will be things we will disagree on, and we will have to Let's create the conditions first. Now, I'm not going to take Chairman Xi's side here just to own the libs, as they say. I, I think the Chinese regime is an absolutely terrible institution. I think Chairman Xi is a terrible man. And I think that world leaders who kowtow to him, like the World Health Organization did, like Justin Trudeau has at times, should be ashamed of themselves. But I also will point out the inherent weakness here, which, I mean, by the way, I do enjoy that uh, Justin Trudeau didn't even wait for the translator to translate before just like using the talking points of, oh, no, we will always support in Canada free and frank dialogue and, and so on. He's just like, I, I don't actually know what I think about that. I, I Maybe I like cutting off the translator because if you know that you don't care what he's going to say. But where's the tough talk? What Chairman Xi is doing there is blaming Justin Trudeau for not clamping down on the press, evidently, for allowing the media to report about what the two discussed, when I don't think it would be appropriate for there not to be some scrutiny about what the two were talking about, especially when Canadians were understandably asking Justin Trudeau about it. Did you condemn the genocide against the Uyghurs? Did you condemn the influence and infiltration of Canadian institutions? Why should Canada have to play nice with China when China is out there trying to trample all over Canadian democracy? We're going to talk to uh, two men who know this file very well. One is uh, Garnet Jenis, the Conservative MP, who will join us very shortly. And also Kenny Chu, the former Conservative MP, who I've talked to about this issue in the past. Kenny, it's good to have you back. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me, uh, Andrew. Good to, uh, now, good to talk to you. Let me just bring up the 2019 election, because you sounded the alarm about this, uh, and I think a lot of people kind of dismissed it when, when you pointed out that there were some irregularities here, and that uh, certainly you knew that you were the, the subject and the target of uh, misinformation campaigns that were eerily similar to uh, Chinese regime talking points here. Uh, information a couple of years later now reveals that there were 11 federal candidates that China was backing, and, and we haven't gotten the list of who those are, but are you surprised by this, by the scale of, of this operation in the 2019 election? Not really, Andrew, because uh, knowing what the Chinese communists are capable of doing and their ambitions of, uh, of performing, 
influencing a, a country, an easy target like Canada, would be would be something they they would do. Um, what I experienced in 2021, uh, it's something that would be even more outrageous and obvious comparing to what uh, what CSIS has reported to uh, Parliament and not Parliament, sorry, the Prime Minister's office and the cabinet, certain uh, selected uh, ministers. Uh, it will be even more so. But if he, if with what happened in 2019, CSIS now finally uh, come to terms with it and realize that there have been evidence of, of that happening, uh, I'm, I'm very curious to see what, what their finding is for 2021, not just because that I personally am involved, um, but also because I, I know that there has been there has been other cases in 2021 election mm-hmm. that uh, Gulf China is in, uh, interfering in our country. So I, I'll ask about what you think the motivations are, because in your case, you had been a critic of the Chinese regime, and it was understandable. I don't not support something I support, but it's understandable uh, that the Chinese regime wouldn't want someone who's criticizing them. Is your view that China is trying to vote or get Canadians to vote out critics, or do you think they actively want to support people that they think are going to be friendly to them? Uh, it's both, Andrew, because uh, what they what they want to do is to influence uh, Canada's uh, positions on on many uh, issues. And and let me just take this opportunity to say this: uh, it's not just China. Uh, it is common for foreign countries to actually want to influence and interfere with uh, with our our country's policy and directions. Uh, you know, Russia and and Iran are are two of the uh, you know countries that have uh, been named several times by CSIS reports. However, uh, given what China is now uh, capable of doing, doing resource wise, and also uh, ambitious in doing. Um, they are the most capable and the most blatant in, in doing what they are doing right now. And so I'm, I'm not surprised. I, I, you know, I'm surprised by how uh, our country has failed to protect uh, not just our democracy, our democratic institution, but also, um, you know, to, to say it blatantly, uh, to protect our, our visible minority. Because Chinese, uh, China is now influencing, uh, trying to uh, capture all uh, Chinese diaspora and telling them that uh, they, you know, China is the only country that represents their, their good, their well-being. And that's not the case in a uh, peaceful, multiculturalistic country like uh, our, our country, Canada. Yeah, and I mean, some of those diaspora challenges are, are quite chilling. There was a story that came out, I think it was a few weeks back or so, where we found out that China was managing these overseas police stations, for lack of a better term, and, and trying to give uh, Chinese uh, citizens or Chinese nationals who uh, live in countries around the world, including Canada, uh, a place to go that seems to subvert uh, law enforcement in those countries. So th- there is a, an active challenge, it seems like, for China's regime to extend its reach beyond its own territorial borders. Absolutely, Andrew. It, it's not the first time, though, uh, in 2015, if I recall, uh, uh, Mr. Sam Cooper, an investigative journalist, he had already reported that uh, the Chinese police are functioning in Canada. And we know that uh, Lai Chung Singh, 
uh, a fugitive running away from from the Chinese communists. Uh, he was also reported that uh, he also reported that he's been almost kidnapped successfully back to China. The the only difference is the the um, the CCP now they they have activated uh, people in the diaspora into providing a location and to to help them. In, in doing so, and that is very dangerous because it now involves Canadian citizens doing what they're not supposed to do and violating what they're promised to Canada. So I know it's not a silver bullet solution, I'm assuming, because we're talking about an infiltration that takes place on a variety of fronts. We know there's influence in academia, clearly in, in politics, in elections, and in, in media. But what do you think is the first step to getting serious about this? To make it a nonpartisan uh, issue, um, you know, we, we must learn from the Australians who, even though uh, has a far more dependency, economic dependency on trade with China, and yet they, they still prioritize uh, their country's interests way above the partisan politics that we, we are seeing in Ottawa right now. And if we do that, uh, if the, the, the liberals are, are more cooperative, um, with uh, the NDPs and the Conservatives uh, in, for example, labeling what, what's happening uh, in Xinjiang, China as genocide, say, for example, uh, upholding what uh, Canada's long uh, respected value of uh, human rights and, and uh, you know, a rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know what? China will get the message. China gets the message that it doesn't matter uh, who is in Ottawa, uh, who is the government, uh, you know, this is a, a national interest that they will be upholding. However, by not doing it, by not um, exercising their 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 political um, uh, responsibility, uh, we are actually sending out a message to the Iranians, the the Russians, and the Chinese that uh, we we are we're weak. We're a uh, we're countries that are that are naive, uh, that are idealistic. And uh, we're not serious about protecting our own interests. Why do you think this is such a blind spot for the Liberals? Because there, there's a large Chinese-Canadian community in this country, and, and almost everyone I've met within that community is a proud and patriotic Canadian. And the reason they're here, by and large, is because they were trying to get away from the Chinese regime. And I'm not saying there aren't some that you know may be here that are, are still loyal to to that government. But by and large, I, I would think, from my experience, that Chinese Canadians want the government here to take a strong position. So why do the Liberals find themselves having so much difficulty doing that? In my own opinion, my uh, I believe is a liberal idealism. It's a byproduct of marrying liberal idealism with, uh, um, you know, a very, a very crude um, benefits. Uh, in doing trades, in in getting uh, money, and you know, getting donations, we know that the prime minister mm. just by uh, doing dumplings, he got uh, you know uh, tons of donations from uh, many of these uh, very wealthy uh, immigrants and also citizens. And and idealism. I mean, if you look at what uh, Justin Trudeau's father believed about communism, he has a, a romantic idea of mm. what communism is. And he establishes a very good relationship with China right in the middle of uh, the, the China's uh, cultural revolution that actually destroys the, the cultural fabric and the cultural soul of, uh, of this 
thousands-year-old China uh, and pitting fathers, uh, sons against fathers, uh, students against teachers, destroying the entire society's moral. And, and yet Justin Trudeau's father believed that you know, China, it, it's a, it, the communist China, it's actually something that uh, you know, he could ally with. So with, with that kind of education, with that kind of uh, familial background that is in place, I'm not surprised that Justin Trudeau uh, started with um, an idealistic you know, leaning and also bias uh, you know, favorable to the communist Chinese. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think I mentioned it earlier, but the climate change example is a very good one here, that you get all of these people that are butting heads about issues like, oh, perhaps the two Michaels when they were imprisoned or human rights abuses, but everyone thinks they can all just sort of set that aside because climate change. And and I think that it was very rich when Chairman Xi says that it's on Trudeau to build the conditions for frank discussion when China hasn't really been interested in doing that on its part. But our prime minister is rich in uh, the the uh, lip services and also, you know, signaling virtues. Yeah, yeah. But, neither but, comes off particularly well there. <laughs> but but he is extremely weak in in actions and and uh, showing, you know, the the actions, the the steps that he is willing to take. For example, I mean, yes, I I'm a conservative MP. I was a conservative MP, but. You know, I don't support the conservative because I'm a conservative MP. I supported it because I think that they have done something right. Stephen Harper, for example, year after year, has been asserting Canada's northern Arctic uh, sovereignty by visiting it and, and having exercises there. What has Justin Trudeau done uh, in those areas? And we know that Russia is now eyeing it. And even the People's Republic of China, it's actually eyeing our Arctic uh, sovereignty and regions right now. So, you know, if you are serious about, you know, running a country, you have to act like a leader. You have to actually take some, some tough stance. And unfortunately, Andrew, I haven't seen that from uh, Justin Trudeau much. Former Conservative MP Kenny Chu, thank you so much for your insights as always, Kenny. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah, and I think, look, I, I don't look at that little exchange between Justin Trudeau and Chairman Xi and say that, oh, well, yeah, Chairman Xi really told Justin Trudeau. No, I, I think it's actually embarrassing. It's embarrassing for everyone. It's embarrassing that Chairman Xi gets to just waltz all around and uh, walk all over and smack talk politicians with impunity. And it's embarrassing that Justin Trudeau puts out the image that he's the kind of guy you can do that to, that he uh, does not, uh, I mean, Whatever you think of Donald Trump, who I know just got back into politics yesterday, if he ever even really left, by announcing his bid for the uh, Republican nomination in 2024, do you ever think in a million years that Chairman Xi would have done to Donald Trump what he did to Justin Trudeau today? I, again, whatever you think of Donald Trump, no one would try that with him, least of all China. And I think there's a lesson in that, not that Justin Trudeau needs to be like Donald Trump, but that we are not just hapless bystanders unable to do something about it. Yes, we have to accept that we have a disparity in size and power and influence and economic strength. That's all true. But just because we are smaller and less powerful and less wealthy than China does not mean we as a country are doomed to let China walk all over us. 
But we have to start taking these things seriously. And people can ask the question, well, what do you expect Canada to do? Well, I mean, it, it, what's that old like line that a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step or something schmaltzy like that? Uh, we, we can talk about the things that we aren't doing right now. We are not taking our domestic security against foreign threats very seriously. We are not demanding accountability and making noise about all of the uh, things that have happened with these Chinese influence campaigns. Why is there not? Why is it not front page news that we had a guy who's accused of spying for China working for a public utility in Canada? Why has everyone just conveniently moved on? from that uh, discussion about the demand for documents and accountability and information about those Chinese spies that were working for Canada's secret biosecurity lab. Why has that not been an issue that has remained front and center? Why have we not started demanding politicians tell us who the 11 candidates were? Who did China want to win in 2019? Who, I, don't you think that's kind of interesting information when CSIS is saying, yeah, there were 11 candidates that China was backing. There was money flowing to them, including through an elected member of provincial parliament's office. So you have an elected MPP who is either deliberately or unknowingly serving the interests of China according to our intelligence agency, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. This strikes me as the kind of stuff that a serious country would be interested in getting to the bottom of, but I'm becoming more and more convinced that Canada is not interested in being a serious country. We'll, talk, we'll cover this more, and I would say that the Globe and Mail has done some tremendous work on this. Global News has done tremendous work. I'm not saying that the media is not covering China. I'm saying that the government needs to be taking this seriously, and you have to look at what on earth is wrong with them when they don't. And you cannot separate their relative inaction on some of these things from the fact that liberals were clearly the beneficiaries, at least in large part, of this alleged Chinese influence of our elections. So take from that what you will. I want to talk about the Public Order Emergency Commission process here for a couple of moments, because this is something that continues to go. Uh, nothing as explosive today as what we heard yesterday from notably the commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky. But still some interesting revelations that I, I think we didn't get a chance to talk about yesterday that I would argue are fairly significant for us to understand what's going on here. And I want to first remind you, this is a, a clip from former Deputy Public Safety Minister Rob Stewart, that no intelligence bureau or law enforcement agency identified any CSIS threat act. Take it away, Rob. What intelligence bureau or agency or law enforcement agency told the government, here's the evidence of reasonable and probable grounds or reasonable grounds of a section two CSIS Act threat. And you know, I take it now because it's advised to you that that's required to invoke the Emergencies Act. It's in the documents. You were advised of that. Yes. Right. So what agency gave you the evidence and the intelligence that said, hey, we have reasonable grounds of a Section 2 CSIS Act threat. There wasn't one, was there? So let me um, explain. Uh, nobody uh, bringing advice to the table other than CSIS is uh, assessing uh, that 
against that threat. Nobody advising the cabinet. The cabinet is making that decision. And their interpretation of the law is what governs here and the advice they get. And their, their decision was evidently that the threshold was met. With respect to the, the ministers making the decision, when you're talking about ministers, you're talking about the elected executive, correct? I am. All right, so the prime minister. Among others. Right. To your knowledge, what training in national security and law enforcement does the prime minister have? I couldn't answer that question. Yes. Can you agree with me that he doesn't have any, to your knowledge? I couldn't answer that question. I'm sorry. All right. You have the RCMP, you have CSIS, you have the entire intelligence apparatus in the federal government, and none of them said that this threshold was met, did they? They weren't asked. Okay. I thought it would be useful to go through exactly what is required for the Emergencies Act to be justified. Because there seems to be, certainly if you follow the Twitter discourse on this, a fair bit of misinformation circulating where people who just don't like the convoy and are satisfied with the fact that it was brought to an end believe that that Machiavellian truth that the ends justify the means applies here, which it doesn't. I went on a somewhat lengthy Twitter thread this afternoon in which I, I talked about this, and I, I said, point blank, you do not need to support the convoy to oppose the Emergencies Act. There are plenty of people that opposed the convoy, didn't agree with the message, didn't agree with the tactics, whatever, but also understood that the Emergencies Act was a profound overreach. And I think it's important, before you just talk about whether you liked the outcome or not, I encourage people to actually read the law. And I'm going to do this. We're going to go back to civics class for just a moment here. Two laws in particular that are relevant. One is the Emergencies Act. And speaking of CSIS, the other is the Canadian Security Intelligence Service Act. Now, both of these act can, acts contain information that is critical to defining when the Emergencies Act can be used. And the first thing we need to realize here is that Justin Trudeau invoked a public order emergency. So there are other things in there. There are public welfare emergencies. There are war emergencies. All of that is in the Emergencies Act. We're talking about part two, a public order emergency. Now, this must arise from the following threats to the security of Canada and a situation that is so serious as to be a national emergency. So there are two premises there. Premise one is that a public order emergency requires there to be an emergency arising from threats to the security of Canada. The second premise is that it has to be so serious as to be a national emergency. Premise one you see defined underneath there. Threats to the security of Canada, that is defined by the Canadian Security Intelligence Service Act, Section 2. Now let's take a look at Section 2 of the Canadian Security Intelligence Act, why don't we? It lists four criteria. One, espionage or sabotage. Two, foreign-influenced activities that are detrimental to the interests of Canada. Now, I should say here that foreign-influenced foreign activities refers to state-influenced foreign state actors, not just, oh, a guy in Iowa donated to the convoy. Number three, activities within or relating to Canada directed toward or in support of the threat or use of acts of serious violence against persons or property for the purposes of a political, religious, or ideological objective. 
D, activities directed toward undermining by covert unlawful acts or directed toward or intended to ultimately lead to the destruction or overthrow by violence of the established system of government in Canada. And there's a caveat there that this does not include lawful advocacy, protest, or dissent. So those are threats to the security of Canada. There was a great moment early on in the Public Order Emergency Commission when Brendan Miller was talking to uh, was an OBP intelligence officer and he went line by line. Was there evidence of espionage? Was there evidence of sabotage? Was there evidence of foreign influence activities and so on? And the answer was no to every single one of them. So all of those are the criteria or any one of for a threat to the security of Canada. There still is a premise here that we haven't addressed. Let's say there is a threat to the security of Canada constituting a public order emergency. It still has to rise to the level of being a national emergency, which carries yet another definition. And the national emergency, we go back to the Emergencies Act, is an urgent or critical situation that seriously endangers the lives, health, and safety of Canadians and exceeds the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it or seriously threatens the ability of the government of Canada to preserve the sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity. And there's another caveat there. It cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. So there has to be a threat to the security of Canada, and it has to be so large as to be exceeding the ability of provincial governments to look after it and not something that can be dealt with within existing laws. So even if there were an established threat, which I have not heard any evidence of, there still is that additional test that would need to be met, which I also think is very questionable because all of these police officials have been saying, yes, we could do this under existing laws. And again, there's no carve out for police incompetence. There's no carve out for, oh, but the OPP wasn't getting along with the Ottawa Police Service. That does not justify the Emergencies Act. So all of these questions you might have about whether the government should have engaged protesters, how police should have responded, how long the protest should have gone along, this is all stuff that we can debate, and I would encourage us to debate it. But it has nothing to do with that question of law, which is not a normative question. That question of law, was the Emergencies Act justified? And I don't think you can say under these circumstances, with all of the evidence that we've heard, that it was. Now, there is one little catch there. There's one asterisk that I want to share, and that is that the public order emergency, the Emergencies Act, says that it's when the governor in council, so that's cabinet, believes and has the word they use is reasonable grounds, believes on reasonable grounds that a public order emergency existed. So there may actually be for the government some wiggle room that even though there was clearly no emergency, well, they had reasonable grounds to believe. And that's the aspect to be worried about here. So it's very interesting to note not just what the facts were on the ground, but how many of those facts cabinet knew about which is why it was very critical to learn that cabinet knew about the negotiations with police, that cabinet knew about the fact that there were no weapons, that cabinet knew 
all of these things because that's proof that their reasonable grounds were being obliterated. So uh, I believe what we say in the current parlance is thank you for coming to my TED Talk. That is how the Emergencies Act works. We will continue to follow the Public Order Emergency Commission and Chinese influence, which I think constitutes more of an emergency in Canada than the truckers ever did, and lots more. I thank you so much. If you want to support the work we're doing at True North, please head on over to donate.tnc.news, donate.tnc.news. And if you're interested in delving into uh, what truly happened in Ottawa earlier this year, you can pick up a copy of my book, The Freedom Convoy, The Inside Story of Three Weeks That Shook the World. And thanks to all of you who have already read it and enjoyed it. Uh, to that effect, I will say on Saturday, I'm going to be in Whitby, Ontario for Rebel Live. I'll be speaking there. Tamara Leach is going to be speaking. Ezra Levant, I believe Arthur Pulowski. I think Maxime Bernier is going to be there. It's going to be a, a lot of fun. So if you want to come out, you can get tickets at uh, Rebel's website. That'll be on Saturday. No idea when I'm going to speak, but hopefully we have a good time. And if you are there, do come out and say hello. With that, I will say farewell to you all now. We'll be back Friday for Fake News Friday and then in Whitby on the weekend. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.